Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Ben Spears is going to be preaching today, but before he does that, Clarence and Alyssa Murray are going to be in the back, and they're going to be reading the passage. If you'd like to follow along, it's 1 Samuel chapter number 28, or you can grab one of the Bibles underneath you and, uh, or in front of you there, and it's page 319, 1 Samuel chapter number 28, or page 319 in the Bibles in front of you. And when they're done uh, reading, uh, Ben's going to come up and give us the word today. So take it away, Murray's. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Geboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself. And put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring out my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answered me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what shall I do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Elimelech, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give you Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. 
The Lord shall give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul fell on his face full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and she saw that he was terrified, and she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked it unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and the servants ate it. And they rose and went away that night. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, uh, for your rule over creation, over us, for your son, for his death on the cross so that we could have new life and have a relationship with, with you through him. I pray that your spirit would be present here today as we study this event in Saul's life, that you would reveal sin, you would turn people's hearts to true repentance, that if there's anyone here that does not know you, does not have a relationship with you, you would open their eyes so that they could, that, so that they could see who you really are, that could repent and have new life, that they could be called a child of God. So please, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here as we study in your name. Amen. Uh, Corey and Betsy Tenboom and the Tenboom family. They were uh, Dutch watchmakers who lived during World War II with their, their father, their brother Casper, and then there's Corey and Betsy. During World War II, during the Holocaust, they helped many Jews escape the Holocaust by hiding them in their home. But they were eventually found out. They were caught and arrested. And eventually, Betsy and Corey Tenboom made it to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. And many of you might know the story through the, the book, The Hiding Place, which is also a movie. Now, uh, Ravensbrück was a German concentration camp, but it was exclusively for women, 1939 to 1945. And it, it's, it's estimated that about 130,000 female prisoners passed through this camp. About 50,000 of them would die. Uh, about 2,000 were killed in gas chambers, and then there's about 15,000 that survived. Corey survived. Betsy did not. She died in the camp. And we're going to leave this story for now. But I want you to, to imagine you're going into this camp. What would you feel? When we are confronted with difficult circumstances, such as a crisis, how do we respond? Do we have hope? Are we hopeless? Now, hope's, hope's an interesting word. It's defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Now, if we have hope, we can move mountains. We can do anything. We can recover from illnesses. We can have just a positive outlook on, like, uh, on life. But without hope, what, what comes in the absence of hope? Fear. Without hope, we can absolutely fall apart when moments of crisis happen. So as we are going to see today in this passage, Saul, in a moment of intense pressure, found himself hopeless and without God. He does not know what to do. 
And there's some stories in the Bible that are happy. Uh, we talk about David and Goliath, Gideon. This is a sad story. It's a dark story showing us the depths of what we can do when we have no hope. But I think from the story we can glean rich truths that God has for us. We can see that uh, we have hope in Christ. So I want us to, to put ourselves in Saul's shoes and live this experience with them, seeing how we experience our own moments of crisis. And I want to pull us back from this, from this story and share the hope that we do have. Now before we jump in, just a quick summary, and I think there's a map I want to show. So where, where, are, where are we at in Samuel? There had been this, this conflict, and, and Brian shared a couple weeks ago, that Saul was pursuing David in the fields of En Gedi. There's two times that David had an opportunity to kill Saul, and he chooses not to. He just cuts off his robe, and he take, at one situation, he takes his water pot in another. Saul is sorrowful, and then he gets called back because there's, there's this brewing battle with the Philistines. And then last week, we saw uh, and heard from Bob that David is now with the Philistines with Achish, and we, we hear a little bit about it this morning. So in this, in this uh, battle, we have the Philistines who are up in Shunem, and Israel south of them on the, the right map. They're down at Mount Goboa. And this is an important area in this region. It's, it, it splits the uh, Israel north and south, and it's also a heavy economic region. So this battle is very important. If the Israel loses this battle, they're going to be cut in two, and they're going to lose a lot of economy. A lot of people are going to die. So as we jump back and forth between David and Saul, one thing we should keep in mind is that we're confronted time and time again with the difference in character and the difference in responses between David and Saul in situations. So let's, let's look at how Saul deals with the situation. The first point I have, verses 3 through, three through 6, is a hopeless situation. I'm going to skip over the, 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 the topic of David and Achish because that will be talked about further in a few weeks. So in verses 3 through 6 we read, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines gathered, assembled, and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies or saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So we're first reminded that Samuel had died. We learned that back in 1 Samuel 25. Perhaps this tidbit, tidbit was given to us because it reminds us that in times past. Saul would go to Samuel. In desperate times, he did seek Samuel for guidance, and he will attempt to do the same thing in this chapter. We're also told that Saul had previously removed the mediums and necromancers from the land. Now, mediums and necromancers are those that use demonic powers to attempt to summon and or contact the dead. This isn't as prevalent maybe in the, in, in the U.S., but I know growing up in the Philippines, it, was a, it is a real thing in the world still to this day. Mediums communicate with spirits. Necromancy deals with trying to summon the dead. In either case, this practice was numerous times prohibited by God in the law. We read in Leviticus 19.31, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And Leviticus 20 says, If a, man, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person, 
and will cut them off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, 27, and also Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12, also give other examples of God's condemnation of this practice. So it is clear here that God detests these evil practices. And Saul, we're told that Saul had at one time in his life been obedient in following God's commands in this area. He had removed them. It reminds, it reminds us of a time when he did obey God. This tells us, though, that Saul had knowledge of the evilness of this practice and was aware of God's abhorrence of it. It was an abomination to him. So, leaving that, we now turn to a difficult, stressful situation. He is confronted with what seems like a hopeless battle. Clearly, him being afraid, even though he assembled all of Israel, gives us the impression that the Philistines were greatly outnumbering what he had to bring, and he was afraid he was going to lose the battle. And he's afraid of the outcome it would be. He might die. A lot of people would die. Maybe they would lose that economic ability for his country. Now, you may say, I'm not facing down an army. This doesn't apply to me. But before we gloss over the situation, we need to ask ourselves, what sort of desperate situations can we today find ourselves in? I think we can sort of relate on this. Saul was probably having sleepless nights, probably wasn't eating. Have you ever felt that? You can't sleep at night? Have you ever been afraid because you're facing down a terrible situation, a crisis? While we certainly aren't staring down death by a spear or sword, we are in seasons of life staring down difficult situations. You know, your mortgage has gone under. You're behind on your payments. You're afraid you're going to lose your job. You've lost a close family member. You're being abused. You have an addiction. Your family is falling apart. Your kids may be out of control and you don't know what to do. The debt collectors are calling. You find out you cannot have children. And it's not only for us that are older. You find out that you're, be, you're, you're always being bullied at school. You don't know who, what your identity is. You don't have any friends. You're struggling with depression. You see, like Saul, we all face extreme pressure points at times in our life. Moments of intense crisis. And we're all faced with the question, how will we respond? As Bob mentioned last week in his sermon, what do you do when you are at your lowest point? And then we see what Saul did. It says in verse 6, And Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So Saul did attempt to contact the Lord, but was met with silence. His dreams were silent. The Urim, a device used by priests, did not yield results. But we know from a couple chapters ago that in pursuing David, Saul had killed all the priests. Do you remember at Nob? David had been there. He had gotten help. Saul came after him, and he slaughtered all of them. So it's not surprising that it did not work. There's no more prophets now that Samuel was dead. Saul had cut himself off from the Lord by his disobedience and sin. Reminds me of Psalm 68. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So let's heed this warning for ourselves. If we're living a life of willful disobedience, knowing that we're doing wrong and not even being repentant for it. In James 4, it tells us, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this, is, this also reminds us of 
when Saul refused or didn't wait for Samuel to offer his sacrifice, but decided to do it himself. Once again, he decides to take actions into his own hands. So we have a hopeless situation and then a desperate response. Because God does not answer him, Saul decides to do it his own way. We see this in verses 7 through 14. In verse 7, he says, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go to her and inquire of her. Verse 8, And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for whomever I shall name to you. Verse 10, But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And in verse 14, An old man is coming up. She said, An old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. So in desperation, he, con- he, he concocts this drastic plan. You know, and Endor is not the plan in, in Star Wars where the Ewoks battle the Empire. This is where a witch lived, okay? And they knew about it. They knew about it enough so that they were able to tell Saul rather quickly that they could go and see her. He seeks help from the very thing that he had rooted out earlier in his kingship. He sought out that which was an abomination to God. In Isaiah 8.19 tells us, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? And not only does he seek out this medium, but he invokes the Lord's name. He invokes his name. This is God's name, Yahweh. It's, in all cap- it's probably in all capital letters in your Bible. He swore to her by God's actual name that she would be protected, that he would protect her. Saul used it as a promise that no harm would come to what is an abomination to God. As one commentator put it, in fact, Saul's oath invoked the Lord to grant immunity to the one who broke the Lord's command. It turned God against himself. Apparently, Saul didn't even know what he was doing. There's no recognition in this passage that he acknowledged his wrongdoing. Perhaps, perhaps he thought that the ends justify the means, that he was, after all, seeking Samuel, so I'll do whatever I can to do it. Does that sound familiar, too, the end justifies the means? Do we ever do that? Sin because we think the outcome will be good? Now, one sort of question that might come to mind is, was this actually Samuel? Was it a hallucination? How did this, how did this medium summon Samuel from the dead, this abomination? Now, I don't want to spend much time because it's more of a, a deep topic, but I will say that based on the text in my study and the woman's reaction, this was not an expected outcome for her. She was shocked that Samuel actually came up, which leads me to think that when she tried to typically do this, this is not what happened. This is something strange. In addition, Samuel's spirit matches earlier accounts with Saul, and right away he pronounces judgment, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So I think an honest read is that this was a unique act of God that brought Samuel into contact with Saul one last time to pronounce judgment, and I think to give Saul another chance at repentance. Now, desperate people do desperate things. Any Lord of the Rings fans? No? No, a couple? Yeah? All right. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, there's, a, there's a creature in this, in this story. His name is Gollum. Uh, anyone remember Gollum? 
right? So he, they're, 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 the whole story is based on this ring of power that if the evil source, the evil king gets it, he can take over the world. And there's a story of these creatures called hobbits going back to destroy the ring. And Gollum has been corrupted. When you, when you have possession of this ring, it corrupts you. And the whole story, there's a subplot of Gollum doing whatever he can to get the ring back. And at the very end of the story, they're finally at the place where they can destroy the ring, a volcano, and the hobbit who is carrying the ring claims it for himself and puts it on. And so Gollum, in desperation, does one last attempt to get this ring, and there's a struggle, there's a battle, and it's a little bit graphic, I won't go into details of what happened, but Gollum gets the ring, but in doing so, in finally getting it, he slips, he slips off the edge into the lava, killing himself, destroying the ring, but even to the end, he's, he's holding up, it's his precious. So we see here that Gollum did anything, did something so desperate to get it, but it brought about his doom. So we see here Saul, desperate for anything, desperate for an answer, and doing so brings about his own doom. So, I want to ask you a question. When we are faced with these difficult situations, how do we act and where do we turn to for guidance? What do we do when we face these pressure cooker, hopeless situations? You know, when we're angry with someone, do we follow the Bibles, what God tells us to do, love our enemies, or do we turn to the culture for guidance, tit for tat, backstab? Do we turn to social media or culture for guidance on what our image should be? How do we portray ourselves instead of leaning on what God says we should be, who we are as a husband, a wife, a young adult, a man, a woman, so on? In fact, there are numerous things that can and do distract our attention. Bob mentioned this last week in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now I want to focus quickly on all your ways. This is a condition of the promise that he will make straight your paths. It's not like we can just acknowledge God in one area or no areas and expect him to to make our paths straight. We need to acknowledge him and seek after wisdom. You know, in Saul's later years, we don't see much evidence of him acknowledging God in all his ways, seeking after God's knowledge, his wisdom, abiding in God. This is in stark contrast to David, who although by no means perfect, he killed a man, he took his wife, but was, a man, was still called a man after God's own heart. Because he, he was repentant, he lived a life that sought after God. Saul did not. He did not, as a pattern, seek from guidance from God. He only turned to God in crisis without acknowledging him in his life and repenting of his sin. So we see a hopeless situation, a desperate response, and finally a swift judgment in verses 15 to 20. I'll pick it up a little bit later. Uh, Let's see, it's verse... uh, Verse 15. Verse 16, actually. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. 
Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Judgment was swift, almost immediate. Saul is, Saul is called here an enemy of God. That makes me afraid to be called an enemy of God. And his death is foretold. First Chronicles, we, we read that Saul died for his breach of faith because he sought guidance from medium and did not seek guidance from the Lord. So Saul would die the next day in battle. We'll read this in a couple chapters. So we see here, there are consequences to sin. This passage serves us as a warning that we should not take sin lightly. There are consequences. God judges sin. Though we as believers were eternally secure, there are still punishment if we willfully live in sin and do not acknowledge God. Some examples from the New Testament, because some people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was harsh judge. The New Testament God doesn't judge sin. It's all about grace. There are examples in the New Testament. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their plot of land. They brought it. They lied about their sale so they could take credit for giving money. And what did Peter say? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. There's also a warning, another example, the Lord's Supper. If we abuse the Lord's Supper, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, for anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the, the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Not to mention the warnings against the churches in Revelation. So sin is serious. We should not, we should not take it lightly. So we have a very sad conclusion at the end of the chapter. What? Is there anything missing? Saul, Saul's judged. What's missing from this? Saul takes the punishment. He doesn't, he doesn't repent. He doesn't beg God for mercy. It almost is as if he, he accepts his fate. He eats a meal and he leaves. It's a very sad conclusion. Hopeless and without God. So, a few takeaways from the story. Number one, sin takes us places we never think we will go. Do you think Saul, if you had asked him when he became king, hey Saul, you know, in like 10 years, you're going to go seek guidance from this medium? What do you think his answer would have been? You kidding me? I'm not going to do that. God says they're abomination. I'm going to take him, take him out. So, do we, though, do the same thing? I, I, never, I never cheat on my wife. Just a little flirting, just a little looking. I never have an affair. Sin is serious. We never know where sin can take us. We need to be warned about Saul's life and this story, the depths of sin. It says in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Christian brother, sister, is there willful sin you are living in, unconfessed, that you're harboring in your life? This passage serves as a warning to repent of our sin, 
True repentance. True repentance is not sorrow. Saul was sorry. He felt bad when he tried to kill David. True repentance is different than sorrow. It's taking acknowledgement completely for what you have done. Let this be a warning to us. Today, make it right with God. Seek help. We're here. The church is here to help. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be thrown out of the church. You're going to be loved. Now, what's the hindrance to true repentance? I think this was evident in Saul's life. I know this is something I struggle with. I think a hindrance to true repentance, especially dark, deep, secret sins, is pride. When pride gets in the way, ah, lots of bad things can happen. So confess. What sins are you harboring? So sin takes us places we never think we will go. But secondly, I want to pull us back. Saul was hopeless and without God. But I want to remind us that we are hopeful in Christ. We have hope. At the beginning of the message, we define hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. I want you to think of hope as this. Confident expectation of what God has promised and its strength in His faithfulness. Confident expectation of what God has promised and strength in His faithfulness. Turn over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. What does the ver- next verse say? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have hope because of the gospel. We've been redeemed. What is the gospel? Let's be reminded of it this morning. We recognize that God created the world, and we are accountable to Him. We also understand that we have a problem because we've rebelled against God we sin, and we will, we will be accountable for our absolute rejection of Him. It says in Romans, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. So we have a problem. We are accountable to God, and we've rebelled against Him, and He demands a payment, which we can't fulfill. But the solution... The solution to our rejection of God is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So finally, how do we respond? To become born again and to be saved from our sin is through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, if you have never repented, today is a day of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He will save you. Make him the Lord and Savior of your life today. Repent and turn to Christ. And brother, sister, those of us who are in Christ, remember that we have a hope. We've been brought near. We are saved. We are secure. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. 
If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What does Jesus say in Matthew? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So brother, sister, it says later on that we will be grieved by various trials. So it's going to happen. We are going to confront crisis. So we can grieve, we can lament, we can be sad, we can cry. We should cry out to God. Cry out to Him and keep trust in a God who loves us and seeks the good for those who love Him. And finally, for those brothers and sisters who are not in a crisis, you have the, maybe you have the gift of faith. You just are confident in God. You live a life that has supreme trust in Him. You can encourage those who are weak, who are hurting, who are in crisis. One of my favorite verses lately has been Hebrews 10. It says, Hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So let's, let's go back to Corey and Betsy Tenboom in the barracks, barracks 28 in Ravensbrück. They just entered this barracks, and here is, we'll pick up the story as we close. We lay back, this is Corey narrating, we lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas! Betsy, the, the place is swarming with fleas. Show us, show us how. This is uh, Betsy speaking. Corey, she said, he gives us the answer before we ask it as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where is it? Read it again. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on the third complete reading of the New Testament. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Oh yes, rejoice always. Pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey, that's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, then glanced around in this dark foul-mouthed room, such as, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip, oh yes, Lord Jesus, thank you. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. And Betsy said, thank you for the crowding here since we're packed so close that many more were here. And Betsy also said, thank you for the fleas. And I said, the fleas? This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. You can all relate with that, or bed bugs. And Betsy says, that she says, it doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. It says in all circumstances. Fleas are part of this place and where God has put us. 
Later on, some weeks had passed, they held worship services. Women came and no one ever bothered them. They were in the back of this barracks. No one ever bothered them and came back and broke up their services. They couldn't figure it out. So a couple weeks had passed, I think. Corey's coming back from working, and she sees Betsy, who is smiling, this big smile. And she said, you know, you, you, know, you know, Corey, we've never understood why we've had so much freedom in the big room. Well, I found out. This afternoon, there had been confusion about our work, and we'd asked the supervisor to come. But she wouldn't. She, she wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? Anyone know why? Because of the fleas. That place was crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remember Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. And Barracks 28 at Robinsbrook was known as a crazy place where women have hope and hope they had a living hope. Hope in the midst of darkness, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of unimaginable evils. Many women in Barracks 28, no one believed that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story today. Uh, for the warnings you give us in Scripture about a life, a life that is without hope. I thank you for the encouragement you give us and the hope we do have in you, your Son. Pray, Lord, that there's people here in this room that have, not, have, have unconfessed sin, that are living a life of willful disobedience, or they're confronting a crisis and it seems hopeless. I pray that they would turn to you and trust in you, hold true to your promises and your word. I pray for anyone who does not know you, Lord, you would open their eyes. They would call upon you to be saved, and a miracle would happen, and we could welcome them as a brother and sister in Christ. Uh, To you we give all the praise and honor and glory in your name. Amen.